If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we've been journeying through the Gospel of John. Uh, John, the Gospel of John is written by one of Jesus' best friends that in Scripture they call the beloved disciple, which he wrote the book, so he's kind of just like, you know, bragging on himself like, man, Jesus really loved me. Uh, and I get it. If I were writing Scripture, I'd probably say, say the same thing. Uh, and all this is is a firsthand account of the things that Jesus has done, whether that has been his miracles, his life, his ministry. And so in this passage up to this point, we've seen Jesus do an incredible amount of things. Like uh, we've seen him turn water into wine, which is his first miracle. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him multiply fish and bread to feed a multitude of people. And the reason that John is writing this, he makes very, very clear in chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, he says that he's writing these things so that you would believe in him and that you would have life in his name. And, and from the very beginning, or actually it's the end of John, but, but John doesn't pull any punches about what the gospel is about. It's about turning our hearts and our minds from unbelief to belief in Jesus. And by doing so, we would have life in his name. We know that from Scripture and, and, and those of us that have professed Christ, that life is truly found in Jesus. And John is saying in this gospel account to the readers of that day, and I believe for us today, that on, life can only truly be found in Christ. Right? That, that Christ is the fulfillment in our life. That Christ brings joy to circumstances where maybe joy shouldn't be found. He brings comfort in areas where comfort shouldn't be found a lot of times. But all this is so that we would have life, and John even goes on to say in John chapter 10 that we would have life abundantly. Now we hear life abundant and we think, uh, maybe you've heard some prosperity preachers or some other guys on the radio, or radio, does people listen to radio? Rob actually mentioned people listen to radio. So yes, uh, I don't know if anybody listens to like pastors on the radio, that's still a thing anymore. But maybe you've heard some people like, uh, when we think life abundantly, that means cars and more money in the bank account. And uh, I tell you, as a pastor, that's not true for me. <laughs> um, but, but what he's saying is like actual life and freedom is found in Christ. And so this morning, as we kind of examine, uh, continue to examine the Gospel of John, this is all leading up to a moment. John chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 16 through 24. Uh, would you stand for, with me for the reading of God's word? We do this as a way to honor the written word of God that, that has been preserved and passed down for us for teaching and reproof and correction. And so this isn't like a legalistic thing. If you don't want to, you can sit. But uh, just as we stand and hear God's word, it says... This, 16 through 24, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It's a mic drop moment there. <laughs> when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and, his, and his, also his tunic. 
But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was f- to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided the garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Let's jump to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. You may be seated. So if it hasn't been obvious by now, uh, every song that we've sung and passage that we've read today is led to this moment, and and where we are in the Gospel of John is led to uh, this moment, which in my opinion, and scholars would agree with me, uh, so I just kind of rip off what they say, uh, but this is kind of the apex moment of the Gospel. Everything has led to this moment. Prophecy has been led to this moment. We've just read from Isaiah 53. If you look in Psalm 12, that's, there's also a prophecy that, that lays out what is about to happen. One of the things that I've quoted time and time again during this series in John uh, is a famous line by A.W. Tozer that says this, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if this is your first time hearing this, uh, think about what this quote entails. Another way to put it might be, uh, whatever you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Here's what I mean by that. It, it, It really comes, when it comes to Jesus, we all have opinions or thoughts on what he did, who he was, what he taught his people, he taught what he taught when they taught him how to live. We, we have opinions about what it means to follow his code of conduct or, or the scriptures or the law, maybe your code on sexual ethics and, and generosity and things like that. We all have ideas when it comes to the idea of God. And when you really think about that, it shapes how we live. Here's what I mean by that. Everybody has opinions about Jesus that shape how we live our lives. Take, for instance, uh, Albert Einstein, who said once, I am a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. He further added, no man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type look at the authentic vitality of Jesus. This is someone who is not a believer in Jesus. Take uh, another person who is the leader of the nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan. He says, no prophet before Jesus cast out demons that I can remember. Do you remember any of the old prophets casting out demons? Jesus was deep. There was something about the power of his words that made demons Come out. This is uh, the leader of the nation of Islam who has an opinion of Jesus that is actually not that Jesus is Lord, but that he was a, a very powerful and really, really powerful teacher and prophet of his day. Again, we all have ideas or opinions when it comes to Jesus. They influence how we live. If we believe that Jesus is just a good teacher but not divine, his teachings are good for what we deem acceptable and then we can throw the rest out the window. Right? We, we like the, the Jesus that is about mercy and love, but when it comes to justice or wrath, we kind of like stay away from that. 
uh, because it doesn't fit my idea of who Jesus is. But if we believe truly what John 14, 16, uh, 14, 6 says, he says in John, we, we covered this a few weeks ago, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except by me. Then we believe Jesus is God and that changes everything about who we are. Right? This is not a flippant thing that we can just say, yeah, I believe and we're done. No, this changes how we ought to live our lives. As we unpack John 19, it is essential for us to have this question in mind. Uh, I remember C.S. Lewis once made this statement famous. He wasn't actually the, the, the author of this thing that it came out in a book, but he says that Jesus is either three, one of three things. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And we kind of frame things through that lens. We have to think or ask ourselves, uh, who is Jesus? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or is he actually who he says he is? In John 19, we see that scripture makes the case that Jesus was indeed Lord. Jesus was God in the flesh. And how do we get this from the crucifixion account? In a moment, what seems to be dark, the, the cross actually gives us prophecy fulfilled and an exalted Jesus who takes on the sins of the world. I'm used to using my iPad, so bear with me. I'm going old school today. <laughs> uh, but here's where we're at. Where we find ourselves in this text is essentially the apex of the gospel. All right, we skipped this passage a, a, a few weeks ago, uh, but, but what happened prior to this, uh, we, we covered it in Palm Sunday a little bit uh, back in April, March, uh, somewhere around there. <laughs> but we covered it in Palm Sunday, but, but here's where we're at. Jesus is at the end of his earthly life in ministry. He has performed miracle after miracle. Uh, people have followed him, and at this particular moment where we're getting to, at in the crucifixion. There's about 120,000 people that have come from all over the regions uh, to celebrate the Passover feast, this, this commemorative moment where they remember, if you're familiar, do you remember the Old Testament, um, you know, the whole, like, let my people go thing, and they have to, like, put blood. Some of y'all remember the old movie with, uh, who's in that movie? Uh, it's like an old school. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So they, they put blood on the, 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 the door fronts and everything so that, that God would, the spirit of God or the angel, whatever, like they would not die. And, and there's this, this whole thing. And they commemorate this moment of, of blood that was shed for them. A sacrifice was made so that the people would be set free and they would not experience death. And so every year they would gather and celebrate uh, and commemorate this moment. And so people have come from all over for this moment. Here, Jesus has performed miracle after miracle, and they know he is coming for the Passover feast and the celebration. And there's rumors. I mean, just, just picture it. Like uh, people just whispering, Jesus is coming. He's coming. The guy that we've heard so many stories about, he's, he's coming here. They're, they're whispering to one another, like, hey, he's, I've heard that, that Jesus guy that cast out the demons and did all these things. I mean, you could, you could just place yourself in that moment. 
right? That, that, that this anticipation, like, you just can't wait to see this. I mean, you just kind of look at celebrity culture, and this is a, a thing, right? Like, like anytime uh, one of my friends was just like, he's friends with the guys of the Spurs, he's like, hey, I know that this guy's coming in next, in, in, in a little bit. And so everybody's just like waiting for, for this moment to arrive, like the people are here, and then everybody's like, oh my gosh, they're here, and people are like asking baby autographs their forehead or something I don't know <laughs> uh, but but this is the kind of thing that is happening people are whispering to one another like, hey I heard Jesus is going to be here or he's going to show up for this thing and, and and guess what he does Jesus enters uh enters into the city this long-awaited king to rescue us from Roman persecution and rule they're they're saying this is our guy like, the king is coming. He is on his way here, and they're whispering it to one another. And what they do next is an extravagant thing. With this in mind, Jesus is given a royal welcome. He rides in on a donkey. The people are laying out palm trees and yelling, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What they're crying out is a simple prayer of that time. It's saying, save us now, we pray. And this is the entrance that Jesus is given when he rides in on a donkey. He's treated like royalty. But it didn't take long before they, were, they went from giving him a royal welcome to one of his own disciples, Judas, delivering him over to the soldiers that would lead to this moment, his crucifixion. Think about it. One of your own. After you've been welcomed in by the masses and, and they're ready to crown you king. A few days later, they're yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. So Jesus is fulfilling this moment. He knows what's about to happen. Put yourself in this situation. I, 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 some of you all know my story. I kind of grew up in a more charismatic, uh, Pentecostal-y uh, kind of environment. And I found myself reading this, this scripture this week. And I was like, mm, yes, God. <laughs> I was pulling to Ryan. You know, I was like encouraging myself. Like, mm, that's good. That'll preach. <laughs> no one's going to encourage me. I'll encourage me. You know, <laughs> kind of thing. But I, I was getting fired up reading this because I, I was placing myself in this picture. To think that I would have been there. What would my reaction have been? So think about it. Jesus knows what's about to happen. It's a hot day. There's sweat and blood and tears uh, that are seeping from his body and his face. Jesus has been questioned by authorities. He's been beaten by soldiers. He's been denied three times by one of his closest disciples, Peter. He's been interrogated by the religious elites or the high priests who actually should have been the people to recognize that this man is who he says he is. Instead, they're calling for his death. They have, the people have actually found no fault in him, and yet the crowd is yelling, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, this actual proven criminal. And they want him instead. The very same people who were yelling, save us now, we pray, or, or Hosanna in the highest, the king is come, he is here. Well, now they're pleading with Pontius Pilate. They're saying, hey, actually, we, we don't want this, this Jesus. This, this guy who's claiming to be king of the Jews, he's no king at all, and he certainly isn't our king. 
He's ar- the, he, they're arguing with him. They're saying, we want Barabbas. And when, in fact, Jesus, the Pontius Pilate, even recognizes that Jesus has broken no law. In fact, he's done the opposite. If you really read throughout the scripture, the gospels, that Jesus has done what, what most people wouldn't have. He provided meals for 5,000 people that we can account, which really was like 15 to 20,000 people because they only counted men in, in this time. Right? He, is, he has healed people from leprosy. He has turned the, the, the blinded eye to see. He has, has healed the deaf. And, and all of a sudden, he is actually doing good things, and they are calling for his life. The people want blood. They're not content, if you read in this passage, they're not content with Jesus just being beaten and let go. They want him dead. Again, the chance change from Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate, as a last-ditch effort to appease the crowd's thirst for blood in hopes of letting Jesus go. If you read the gospel, I encourage you, once you get home, to read John 19. Pilate is actually trying this method that was common of, of, of people in his power in his day. Where, where just by beating them a little bit, they would hope that that would satisfy the blood because they didn't want that blood on their hands. So, so Pilate is, is saying, turning him over to the soldiers. He's delivering them over to the soldiers and saying, hey, just beat him a little bit more. We don't actually want him to die. And the people are still calling for Jesus' death. And there's a last-ditch effort of hopes of letting Jesus go. He ups the ante on the physical punishment and has Jesus flogged with lead-tipped whips. This was meant to make an example out of the person to make it painful and let them go on their way as a promise to cause no more trouble. But they used these lead-tipped whips, giving Jesus the lashing suited for the worst of criminals. His skin was ripped with every lashing. The soldiers sped on him. They were mocking him. They crowned him the king of Jews with, with this crown of thorns. They wove it together. And when we see the, the, the image of Jesus, right, in our, your little books of white Jesus or whatever, <laughs> Jesus wasn't white, just so we know. We say this all the time, like that thing is not, that little stained glass, it's not Jesus. Uh, we actually don't really even know who that is. It was just kind of here when we got here, and we're just like, well, we'll say it's David or something with a sword. I don't know. <laughs> but when we see uh, an image of Jesus on the cross or Jesus with this crown of thorns, right, we see these like little bitty thorns that were woven together. But what these were were these uh, Palm date leaves that were actually about 12 to to 16 inches in length. So think these giant spikes. And it was a way of mocking Jesus because if you think about it, they're crowning him with this kind of thorn. It looks like radiance, right? There's these spikes going out where it looks like he's glowing. And this is meant to mock Jesus. They're saying, this is the king of the Jews. And they press those, those thorns in a little bit harder where he is starting to to bleed. They're mocking him. They give this robe and put it on him. And they keep referring to him as as a king, as if to say, where are your followers now? Pilate, again, brings Jesus before the people. He reminds them that he finds no guilt in them. And they continue to call for his death. The frenzy crowd calls for his death because he has called himself the Son of God. He has called himself 
the Son of God. You see, Jesus isn't put to death because he was a moral teacher, a rabbi that, that taught a few uneducated fishermen a few rules about how to live or follow after God. No, they crucified him because he was making a claim that he could also back up, that he is the great I am. See, nobody gets crucified just for being a loving follower. Nobody got crucified then for, for being uh, just a good teacher. You were having to do something very serious uh, for them to call for your life. So Pilate asked Jesus where he's from. And Jesus knows his time has come but gives no answer. I love how Jesus responds. Jesus is never in a hurry to give a response. It's never in a hurry going anywhere in the Gospels, it seems. He invites divine interruption. He invites these moments of question. But when Pilate starts to think that he has authority over Jesus, Jesus is quick to put him in his place. You see, he asks Jesus where he's from, gives no answer. But when Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Jesus, being God, reminds Pilate that you would have no power over me at all unless it was given to you from above. In this moment that seems so helpless, Jesus isn't fighting for his life. Jesus is reminding the authorities who actually is God and who is in control. Pilate, again, it kind of makes you wonder, like, was this guy, like, legit? <laughs> but Pilate is, is fearful when Jesus says this. If you're following along in, in your Bible, I would encourage you again to go look at this later. Pilate again tries to release him, telling the people that gathered, here is your king, I find no wrong in him. And after centuries of Jewish people calling for a king from God, calling for deliverance, and waiting on God to bring their Savior, they blaspheme God, and the priests say, we have no king but Caesar. These people, these religious people who have wanted a Savior for years, for centuries, they're, they're passing this down, and then we think we could be the one. They say, actually, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate at this point has no option but to deliver, to deliver Jesus to be crucified. Here, Jesus carries his own cross to the place of the school where he would be crucified among thieves. Nails are put into his hands. Nails pierce his feet and he hangs there, barely clothed with his crown of thorns in place. And Pilate orders a sign to be made in three different languages for many people to read, the King of the Jews. With many gathered, including his family and closest friends and disciples, Jesus fulfills the prophecy from Psalm 69 and asks for a drink. The soldiers give him a drink of sour wine, and with their spears they hoist it up to Jesus and have him drink. Alas, Jesus drinks of the cup and says, it is finished. Jesus bows his head and delivers spirit. And we hear this and think, well, what, is the, what hope is there in Christ's crucifixion, right? Like, uh, I was talking to some friends, and they're like, what are you preaching on? And like, John 19, like, oof. <laughs> like, man, that's a, that's a tough passage. You know, it's like, you're, you usually save that for Good Friday, because then Easter's coming, and you can preach the resurrection. 
And we read a passage like this and hear the account and think, what hope is there? What significance is there of this today? And I would answer that the cross is the apex of hope and the foundation of the gospel. We, we read this account and, and we think there are a few things that maybe we wonder about. Like, why did Jesus have to die this way? What does this, why does this story seem so dire and helpless? And, and how do I fit into the story of the crucifixion? I want to say this up front, that Jesus wasn't simply a victim. He was in charge the entire time proving to be God. When we look at this cross, we ought to see God's plan at work to save sinners like me and sinners like you, that that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross, and he willingly went. wasn't against his will. In fact, he again reminds Pilate where he comes from. He says that this would not happen unless God allowed it from above. Jesus is in charge the entire time. He does it to save sinners like me and sinners like you. And at this moment, Jesus is crowned king and shows up not in the way that people wanted, but in the way that the world needed. When Pilate claims his authority, Jesus spoke up and said, Oh, you think you have it, but you don't. This power that you have only comes because I allowed it. Gerald Borchardt, a a theologian, says this. He says that, that although Pilate claimed authority over Jesus... That authority resided in God alone. Pilate was not in control of Jesus, and Jesus was not ready to let Pilate think that he was. Indeed, despite the fact that Pilate believed that he was the presiding judge, the evangelist, he's referring to John, makes it clear that Jesus was doing the judging. Furthermore, Jesus knew exactly where to lay to, or where to lay the blame for the incidents leading up to and including this so-called trial. The prisoner was actually the judge. And the judges were, in fact, defendants. Understand this, that Jesus, again, wasn't a helpless pawn in the hands of Pilate. No, no, no. Jesus was the shepherd king who willingly laid down his life for his sheep. He was the king that was carrying his own cross to his own crucifixion. That was his glorification where he would cover the sins of you and me, pay for them with his blood so that he could deliver and redeem the both you and me. This is the beauty of the gospel. One of my favorite things to think about when I think about this is that all throughout this entire thing, this whole storyline in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is constantly delivered. Jesus is delivered to the soldiers by one of his disciples, Judas. Jesus is then delivered to Caiaphas and Annas from uh, uh, the soldiers themselves. Caiaphas and Annas have Jesus delivered to Pontius Pilate for a a trial that, that seemed to go really nowhere. But Jesus makes clear that on the cross, he delivers his spirit to God. Jesus is in control the entire time. I was, I was, I was reading through that and I was getting fired up. I was like, these are little things in, in the New Testament that you're just like, oh, delivered, delivered, de- oh, delivered. <laughs> this, this is big, that Jesus is in charge the entire time. You see, Jesus laid down his life for you and me, and when Jesus is on the cross, he shouts, it is finished. And when we hear that, we think that, that Jesus is giving up his, his spirit, that he's laying down his life, and this is true. But we think it's a shout of agony, but it is a shout of victory. 
You see, the word to telestai, we translate it as it is finished, and Scripture does that too, but it is also a, a government term that was used in that time by tax collectors that when you would go and pay your debt, they had a stamp and they would say to telestai. It meant paid in full. So on the cross, Jesus is hanging there and shouts, paid in full for your sin and mine. And that is enough to make me be satisfied to glory. That Jesus is saying, Izzy, your sin, paid in full. Your unrighteousness, paid in full. That shame that you carry, that hurt that you deal with, paid in full. It was nailed to the cross, and I covered it in my blood. This is why we sing the song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we, we look to these things, and they're not just songs that we're singing, they're truths that we are proclaiming, because Jesus, again, on the cross, when he shouts, it is finished, he's not just saying, I am done. He's saying, your sin is done. It is done away with. Scripture says that he wipes it away as far as east is from the west, and we rejoice in that truth. Right? Jesus is shouting a shout of victory that he is accomplishing what he is set to do. He has come to deliver his people, not from Roman rule, not from political oppression, but he has come to deliver you and me from the rule of this world and the power of the enemy and the bondage from our sin. Jesus has rescued us from the cross. He victoriously says to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. Your sin, paid in full. My sin, paid in full. Jesus, again, is here, the Passover lamb that covers you and me and all, so that all the world would believe in him for salvation. So when you ask a question like, what does the crucifixion mean for me in my life today? What relevance does this speak to my heart or to my soul? You see, the reason that, that we're kind of hesitant to talk about the cross is because we're also hesitant to talk about sin. We don't like to believe that, that our sin would, would cause any kind of damage or harm or hurt. And Jesus is saying, like, it is, I'm saying, like, it is our sin that put him there and he willingly covers it for us. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have today in the cross? What can we look for when we think about the crucifixion? It's this, if you ever wonder about Jesus' love for you, look to the cross. When Satan tries to remind you of your past, you need to look to the cross. When shame tries to entrap you, look to the cross. When you fall into sin again and again, we need not do anything but look to the cross. When you've done what you swore you'd never do again, or you said something, you said, I'd never say that again, and, and you fail. All we need to do is look to the cross. When your flesh is weak, all we have to do is look to the cross. When our strength fails us, we have no option but to look to the cross. It's our sin that put him there. And it's God's blood, Jesus' blood, that covers us and says, paid in full. No more bound by sin. No more bound by shame. Our sin and shame is nailed and it is paid in full. He paid for it with his life and he did it with joy. Hebrews 12, 2, if, I think we might have that on the screen. We do. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before. Can you imagine Jesus going to the cross with joy in his heart? 
because he knew what he was about to accomplish for his people. With the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Matthew Henry said this, he says, Come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healing. His agony, thy repose. His conflicts, thy conquest. His groans, thy song. His pain, thine ease. His shame, thy glory. His death, thy life. His suffering, thy salvation. Now, I don't want to get <laughs> too far ahead because Lee's preaching on the resurrection next week, and that's going to get me fired up. I'm going to be in the front row pulling a Ryan, just clapping the entire time. And be like, let's go. I'm a, I, again, I grew up Pentecostal, so like, you ever seen the preacher rags? Like, they just start waving it. I'm going to start waving it when Lee's preaching about the resurrection because I'm like, yes, let's go. Let's go and start doing this on everybody. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. Do not. And, okay. In Pentecostal church, I used to call like the front, the front seats, the splash zone. Y'all ever been to, y'all ever been to SeaWorld and you're like, okay, if you sit in the front row, there's going to be some spillover. I'm like, in Pentecostal churches, I called that the, the splash zone because the preachers start going and just spitting everywhere. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> just think it's anointing oil or something. I don't know. Or if you're Michelle, it's essential oil. I don't know. <laughs> but this is, this is, this is I, I, I got to be careful because I'm not, I'm not preaching the resurrection. That's, that's Lee's topic. But here's the thing. The cross is the beginning of the good news. Right? That our sin, your sin, mine, everything that you could possibly think of, uh, your worst case scenario, the thing that you said you'd never do, it is nailed to the cross. And we rejoice in that. We see, we'll see next week that, that Jesus has power over death, sin, and the grave. But just to know even now that your sin is covered. This is the beauty of the gospel. That we don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. Here's the beauty of this. Is that in, this in this time, all these people had spent centuries trying to earn their way to God. Trying to accumulate a, the right sacrifice. It had to be the right, the right lamb. It had to be the right animal from this lineage, from this bloodline, from all these things. And Jesus is saying, that is no more. I've taken it on. I've covered it. And so people went from, from, from feeling this weight and this burden. That we can say now that I am free and I am struggling, but I am no longer struggling to be free. I'm not trying to earn my way to freedom. No, no, no. In Christ, I am already free. That doesn't mean you're going to be without struggle. Can I get an amen? Somebody? Like, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm in the struggle bus this week. Yeah, yeah, you know. Some of us know that, you know, a little bit more than others of what the struggle bus has been feeling like. But here's the thing, that even in the struggle, I am free. I am free even as I struggle. But I'm no longer struggling to be free. Jesus bought my freedom. So how do I respond to this? Some of you need to be reminded that your sin, even the one that you most struggle with now, it was paid in full. As Satan tries to remind you of guilt and shame and, and bring you down and you feel so helpless. Maybe you feel like, man, I, I've, I've gone, I feel like I've, I've, I've taken a few steps forward and I've taken even more back lately. Maybe uh, I thought I'd be further along in this faith journey or in this walk with Jesus. I thought it would look a lot different. And right now I am just getting beat down by the devil 
and I just can't seem to make any progress. If that's you in the room, you need to be reminded that it was paid in full. You need to be reminded that, that Scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you need to be reminded this, this morning that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Maybe some of you need to remember that the Christ's sacrifice meant your freedom. And you need to live as people who have been set free. Some of us are waiting to be perfect and not letting Jesus perfect us in the process. Maybe we just need to have that reminder that it's paid in full. Our debt has been paid and we need to live that way. We need to live, change our mindset, change our trajectory to say, I am not a, a, a helpless standby kind of thing in this story. No, I get to walk as a freed person. And some of you in this room aren't there yet. Maybe you're like, man, I am new to this Jesus thing. And maybe you just need to know that just as I've been saying all along, that your sins have been paid in full as well. That Jesus loves you. The scripture says in John 3.16 that he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in, in him would have eternal life. Jesus has been after you. He proved it on the cross. We just need to accept his love. I'm going to invite the band up uh, to play and sing. But I want us to reflect on these things. Maybe you need to be reminded. Maybe you need the reminder. Maybe you just need to understand once and for all that Jesus indeed paid it all. So we're going to sing a song that talks about this. But I want to make some space for you to pray. Maybe you are dealing with some sin issues in your life, some real struggles. You feel like you can't find freedom. Look to the cross. Take, take this moment even now to look to Jesus. If you need prayer, I, I didn't plan for this, but if you need prayer, I'm going to be in the back where the tables are. Gee, can you join me in the back uh, to help pray for some people? If, if you just say, hey, man, I, I am struggling. I need help. I need prayer. We would love to pray for you. Again, this is not, a, church isn't an event to, to attend, but it's a family to belong to. And we want to be able to walk with people as, as we figure this thing out as we follow Jesus.